Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. If you have a Bible with you, I would invite you at this time to turn with me to the book of Proverbs. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's totally fine. You can listen along and follow along. But I'll be turning to Proverbs, and I invite you to do the same. We're continuing our walk as a church through the entire Bible, one book at a time. And if you're new or newish to hope, usually we zoom in on a single book of the Bible, and we walk through it verse by verse, section by section. But we thought it's good to, from time to time, zoom out. Otherwise, we can lose ourselves in the story of God. We forget that the Bible is not just one of many stories of the world, but it is the true story of the world. And if we, all we do is zoom in, sometimes we lose the script. Which is why we're calling our sermon series Table Read, playing your role in God's drama. Because God does more than tell the true story of the world, but he invites you, he invites me to play a part in it. And how can we play our part if we don't know the story? And so we're doing that. We're getting to know the story. In fact, Bible scholars Michael Goheen and Craig Bartholomew, they compare the Bible to a drama with six acts. This is how they put it. Act one is God establishing his kingdom, creation. Act two is rebellion in the kingdom, the fall. Act three is restoration initiated where the king of all chooses unlikely Israel. Act four, restoration accomplished, the coming of a king. That would be Jesus. Act five would be the mission of the church where we find ourselves today, actually. We spread the news of the king. And we look forward to act six where restoration is complete. When God makes all things new through Christ. Resurrection. Not just of our bodies, but of this world that he created and called good. And so this six act drama is the true drama of the world. And if we were to map the books of the Bible onto the first three acts, this is what we would get. Genesis 1 and 2 with the creation Genesis 3 with the fall. And then restoration initiated where God begins his restoration project. We have, as the Hebrew Bible puts it, Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then the prophets, both former and latter. You see them there. And then the writings, the sort of third segment of this Old Testament that we have in the true story of the world. The writings which begin with Psalms and then continues on with what you see below. And as I look at that, first of all, I think we deserve an applause because we have covered a lot of ground as a church. Amen. This is exactly all the stuff we've been dealing with since the fall. Uh, Not the fall of there, but the fall 2022, the fall of 2022. We've been working through the Bible and I'm excited in the remainder of winter to work through the writings with you so that when spring hits, we're going to hit the Gospels. and We're going to start exploring the New Testament together. Last time I was up here, we worked through Psalms. This morning we'll be looking at Proverbs, as I said. It's really an introduction to the wisdom books in general. 
I don't know if that's a new phrase for you, the wisdom books of the Bible, but the wisdom books are essentially three. They're Proverbs, they're Job, and they are Ecclesiastes. We begin this morning with Proverbs, but first let's pray. Lord, would the words of my mouth and would the meditation of all of our hearts here this morning be pleasing and acceptable to you? You are our rock, you are our redeemer, and you promise that you will attend this word with your spirit so that we would not just learn new information, but that we would actually encounter the risen Savior, Jesus, through his word. And Lord, we pray that by the same spirit, we would actually see Jesus as beautiful. Many of us are coming in here and all we really need is for Jesus to become more beautiful in our hearts, more compelling in our lives. And we ask for that miracle this morning in Jesus name. Amen. Okay, so the other day I was sharing life with a friend and I was talking about a common temptation that I experience when I'm in the midst of anxiety or when I'm in the midst of conflict, especially. So I am tempted To change myself in order to blend in to surroundings. When in conflict, I am tempted to change who I am in order to blend in to my anxious surroundings. And some have compared this temptation to the chameleon. When a chameleon senses danger, what does a chameleon do? A chameleon changes its colors to blend in. Well, when I sense danger or when I feel in the air a sort of static of anxiety, I am tempted to change who I am. I let go of who I am. Now, that struggle is a sermon series by itself. Amen? One day we'll get to that. But what happened next is what I want to talk about this morning. Because what happened next is I'm sitting there with my friend, I'm explaining my struggle, and afterwards I asked if he had a good book to read on the subject. Did you catch what happened? I located an area of struggle in my life, and my default solution to that struggle is information acquisition. That's my default. Now, obviously, good information is a good thing. But here's the problem with my approach. I've already read a ton of books on this unique issue that I struggle with in my life. And so I said to my friend, maybe what I need is not a new book. I don't need more information. Maybe I needed something else. If you're wondering, I did order a book. But my story raises an important question, I think, for all of us to wrestle with this morning. It's this. We may be well-informed, but are we well-formed? Put another way, are we wise? A recent article in the BBC highlights this bold decision by a 36-year-old woman named Dulcie Cowling, and she made a bold decision by ditching her smartphone in favor of the old Nokia brick. Remember that phone? What a great phone. I think you could like throw that on the ground and it would be just fine. In her own words, she says, oh, I thought about how much of my life is spent looking at the phone and what else I could do with that time. Being constantly connected to lots of services, she says, creates a lot of distractions. And then she says, and is a lot for the brain to process. She wanted, in other words, more from life. 
And she determined that her phone was getting in the way. Her smartphone was getting in the way. This thing that has a search engine on it that is connected to the most information that we probably ever had as human beings. And yet she decided that that, act, that sort of access to information was a distraction to well-living instead of an actual help. That's interesting to me. And her bold decision, I think, actually raises the same question as before. We may be well-informed, but are we well-formed? What if what we need in life is not a search engine in our pocket, but... A trustworthy compass in our heart. In other words, where can we find wisdom? Well, the good news is God delights to give his people wisdom. James says in the New Testament, do any of you lack wisdom? Ask God, he will give it to you. He loves giving you wisdom. It's part of the salvation package, Pastor James would say. So imagine mailing your marathoner friend a $100 gift card to Frontrunner. And when they open your letter, the gift card falls to the ground and behind them. They never see it, so they never use it. Well, wisdom is that gift card. Okay, Wisdom is that gift card. We open God's gift of salvation in Christ and we say, thank you, Lord, for salvation from sin's penalty and sin's power. Thank you, Lord, for giving me hope of ultimate restoration. We can taste eternal life today. And we say, thank you, Lord. But God then says, did you get my gift card? Did you get my gift card? I also gave you wisdom. I didn't just rescue you, but I actually gave you wisdom. And too often, we've dropped it in the back of the back seat. We know God delights and longs to give us wisdom because God didn't just give his people one book of wisdom, but he gave us three. Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. And not only that, but God called Israel to be a light to the world. This is a major theme we've been talking about already with the, the first Old Testament books is that God called Israel in Act 2, after Act 2 and Act 3 to what? To be a light to the world, to initiate this, this rescue mission. What, um, what one writer, Sally Lloyd-Jones, calls God's secret rescue mission. And God, in kind of in a mysterious and inexplicable way, calls ordinary people... Israel to do that, to be that light. And so Moses tells Israel in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 4, 6, observe God's word carefully for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations, your wisdom, who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. God delights in giving wisdom. It's part of his rescue mission. And so what is it? Well, I can't improve on Jack Collins' definition. Wisdom is skill in the art of godly living. This definition has three ingredients in it. Each are important. Wisdom is an art. It's not a mechanical process. Living well in this world, like the arts, requires humility. It requires experience. It requires attention. It's like learning to drive a manual transmission in the snow. 
Yes, there's other manual drivers out there. <laughs> Living in this world well, wisely, is not mechanical. It's not robotic. It's artistic. Wisdom, though, is also a skill. Skill, as I think of it, is basically alignment. Skill is alignment. You are skilled when you are aligning yourself to something bigger than yourself. So I become a skillful swimmer, right, when I align myself to the givenness of water and to my own biomechanics. Skillful engineers honor things like gravity and force. Well, wisdom is a skill. Some theologians actually define wisdom this way. A wise person aligns their soul and body to reality. And fools do the opposite. So here's one scholar, Dr. Golden Gay, who says, Folly is a way of thinking and living that ignores how things actually are. And then wisdom is finally, though, godly. If wisdom is alignment to reality, God is the ultimate reality. Amen? This is God's world that you're looking out the window at. You, yourself, are God's creation. Everything that we see and even don't see is God's creation. And Proverbs says over and over again, therefore, if you want to align yourself to reality, then align yourself to the Lord. The way that the Proverbs puts it is the beginning of wisdom is something called, do you know it? Fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. This isn't terror in the face of a tyrant who is against you, but instead it is worshipful awe in the shadow of the Almighty who isn't against you, but is for you. Big difference. If you mix, I'm told, tinfoil and Coca-Cola, you get an explosion, right? So if you mix God's holiness and God's covenant has said, committed to you forever, always love, put those things together you get this explosion called fear of the Lord. And so wisdom is skill in the art of godly living. Scholar Craig Bartholomew has a beautiful image of wisdom that I'll just give to you. It's helpful to me. It's as if God and his creation, his fingerprints are all over it. But these fingerprints aren't superficial. They have deep grooves. I think of Van Gogh's brushstrokes. If you've ever seen a Van Gogh in person, God as the artist has created and put his fingerprints and his brushstrokes all over this creation of his, and there are deep grooves. And so wisdom is basically noticing the grooves and aligning yourself within them. I love vinyl records, and so I think of the great feeling it is when a needle drops finds the groove, and the result is beautiful music. The same with the wise person. Now, here's where the Bible comes into wisdom. I love this definition of wisdom, but where does the Bible come in on this? Well, as I said a couple times already, the scriptures in them, we have three wisdom books. We have Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes. And they are actually, if you're familiar with these books, quite different. Amen? They're quite different when you read them. And I want to just say right away, that is not a problem to get over. 
but it is a gift to receive. It is very kind of God actually to give us all three. Because we need all three desperately to live in this world. So I like to think of the wisdom books, these three books, like a prop plane. So with a prop plane, for it to fly, you need three things, basically. You need three things. You need a left wing, a right wing, and a front wing, which is a propeller, basically. It spins really fast, the front wing. And so if you have one of those things missing or failing, then what happens? The thing crashes. And so it is with a wise life. We need Proverbs, we need Job, and we need Ecclesiastes. And if we miss one of these, or two of these, then we are surely going down. We are not in contact with reality. We need all three. And so Graham Goldsworthy says Proverbs is the perception of order. Job is the hiddenness of order. And Ecclesiastes is the confusion of order. And so to be aligned with reality in God's world, we need to embrace all three or else we're going down. And we will see this morning that Proverbs is very optimistic about our capacity to navigate this world. It's very cause and effect. It, it's very, it gives very optimistic assurances like if you do X, Y will happen. So take parenting, for example. Proverbs 22.6 says, train a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And so we are grateful that we have wisdom about how to parent. A wise parent doesn't just parent, but disciples a child in the good way. But I'm telling you, if we don't have Job and Ecclesiastes in our wisdom paradigm, then we will become overconfident, won't we? We might develop what we could call Coke machine theology. Just drop the coin in and out comes a godly grown up in 18 years. We need Joe and Ecclesiastes in our life to show us that sometimes things don't work out the way that we thought they would or in such a tidy way as Job himself was such a godly father. We need that. We need that to be wise now, I'll say this too. If all we do is live by Job or Ecclesiastes, we might become underconfident in our efforts. And we might just give up and say, hey, it doesn't matter. All of life is vapor. And so we need all three. We need all three to be layered. And we need to live through the layers to look at the world and to live in this world. Amen? Does that make sense? That is how we're approaching the wisdom of hope. And I'm so excited to do this. We're going to be exploring all three of these in turn. We're going to be exploring how they interact with one another. We're going to start, though, this morning with Proverbs. And there's no possible way, we, in the time we have left, cover all the ground the Proverbs covers. And that's kind of part of the point, actually. And so what do we learn? Well, if wisdom is alignment with reality, how does Proverbs do that? I think Proverbs does it in three ways, at least. Proverbs reflects our life, it transforms our life, and then it relates to all of our life. And I want to look at each in turn, beginning with reflection. The Proverbs are beautiful, and they're a gift to us because they reflect the life that we're called to live. They actually reflect it, first of all, in its form. So scholars point out, uh, here's one, I think, kind of lovely outline from a commentary of the book of Proverbs. 
And if you want to read Proverbs on your own, which I recommend, you know, take a picture of this or take some notes. This is a great way of understanding how it's formed. And scholars will point out that seven in the Bible is a significant number of completion. And so we have here seven collections of wise sayings for God's people. Awesome. Love it. Now, I share this, though, because this is about as organized as Proverbs gets. (laughs) Okay? This is about as organized as it gets. Years ago, I preached a sermon series. Maybe some of you were here for this on the book of Proverbs. And I did what most preachers and most teachers do is they sort of divide the Proverbs out in different topics. And so you took something like parenting or something like speech or something like money. And then you basically have a filter and you run all the Proverbs through the filter. You shake it out. Whatever Proverbs fall out underneath is what you preach on. The whole time we're basically, at least as a teacher, saying to God, I wish you were as organized as me. Lord, why didn't you organize these by topic? Sorry. No laughing aloud when you preach. (laughs) See, God didn't organize the Proverbs in neat, tidy topics. It kind of comes at us chaotically. It kind of comes at us randomly as you read them. And some Old Testament scholars, and I love this, ask, hey, is this on purpose? Because life in this fallen but good world is not organized and tidy as it comes to us. Amen? And so the Proverbs come at you at a way that life comes at you. And this means there is wisdom in not just the words of Proverbs, but even the very form of Proverbs. If you do want a list of themes that Proverbs touches on, just by way of sort of overview, here is what one expert, Bruce Walkey, summarizes it as. And you can just take a look. Go and read the whole thing. You just take a look. That's like all of life. That's all of life. That's like the whole gamut of experience of life right there. But each of these topics, as you look at them, they kind of come at you in the book of Proverbs like candy comes at you after you bust the piñata. It's as if God is saying, that's the way life is. That's the way life is. And wisdom is taking it as it comes. I think secondly, though, Proverbs reflects life with its characters, its caricatures. So um, Bruce Walkie again says Proverbs has a royal texture to it, a royal texture. In a way, you read it and you get the sense that it's modeled after sort of uh, wisdom for royalty, leaders. But when you read the book of Proverbs, when you read the wisdom in our Bible, something starts to happen, you realize that the Bible, in a way, um, as some people put it, almost subverts the the genre of royalty wisdom. Because as you read closer, you realize it's not just for kings, but it's for children. It's not just for boys, but for girls. It's not just for fathers or from fathers, but for mothers and from mothers. It's not just for men and from men, but for women. And from women. And so despite all the ways that Proverbs 31, for instance, has been used, I think, to shame women. One commentator, commentator I read writes this. 
The striking image of the valiant woman of wisdom in Proverbs 31 undermines the male and regal associations of wisdom in most ancient cultures. Because wisdom's source is Yahweh, the Lord, it is freely available to all his people, male and female, rich and poor. Proverbs reflects all of life. But Proverbs doesn't just reflect all of life. Proverbs transforms our life. It's meant to transform our life. So God wants us to read these Proverbs, memorize them, speak them to our friends and family. God wants us to chew on them. God wants us, in other words, to live in the world of wisdom. So that what happens? So that we actually start to desire wisdom. This is similar, if you're with us, with uh, the Psalms. Remember, we talked about the Psalms and how the Psalms aren't just expressive. They may even be primarily formative. The analogy we used, if you remember, was often we come to the Psalms like clothes in a closet. And we, we ask our clothes, what is uniquely expressive of how I feel today? And so, I don't know. Happy, joyful. So we put on something colorful, what have you. And that's how we approach the Psalms. We flip through the Psalms and we say, what Psalm uniquely expresses how I feel today? And as I said, we picked like the one Psalm that we always pick, leaving out all 149 of the other ones. Well, the Proverbs actually function in a very similar way. We're, we're meant to sort of live in them, especially when they rub on us and chafe on us in different ways. Why? Because over time, God, by his spirit, wants us to desire the life of wisdom. As we eat the word. It transforms us from the inside out. So in Proverbs, you actually encounter two basic groups of people, the wise person and the fool. And so one commentary I read helpfully divided these two categories even further. Under the wise, you see the upright and the righteous and the diligent and the generous. And then you have the simple, which is someone who's maybe a youth, somebody who's eager to be wise, but not there yet. But then you have this other person, the fool. And in subcategories of the fool would be the wicked, the lazy, the stingy, the mocker, the sluggard. Each of these probably deserve a sermon. But my point here is that as you encounter these characters in the book of Proverbs, they work on your heart. You want to be the wise person. You long to be the person who is generous and diligent. You long for that. And then conversely, you don't want to be the fool. And then what happens? That spills out into little micro decisions in your day. When I read Harry Potter, it's not just entertaining. It's actually formative. It actually shapes me. That's what good books do. It doesn't have to be that book. Good books shape you. So the Potter books, for instance... Shape me into the kind of person who wants to be like Hermione, who wants to be like Neville, Neville, okay? Neville, who in book one, this is kind of a spoiler, I am sorry, but when Neville stands up to his friends because it's the right thing to do, I'm like living my life and I'm like, I don't feel like standing up right now because it's the right thing to do, but then I remember Neville. God bless him. And, and you know, and saying it the other way around, like there are days where it's like, Let's not be like Draco right now. How about in my interaction with my colleague here? I uh, live like a, I don't know, a Hufflepuff. Not a Slytherin. What's the point? Good literature shapes us. If that's true of a children's book, 
How much more true is it of God's divinely inspired word? Amen? Like the Psalms, again, like the Psalms, Proverbs are meant to shape us. God wants to shape you into a wise person. So read the Proverbs. He is more committed to shaping you into a wise person than you even Which takes us to our final point. The Proverbs relates to all of our life. Graham's Goldworthy says that if the Proverbs teach us one thing, it's that all of life is relational. Now, if you're with us in our sermon series, when we talked about Proverbs, we went on this a lot. We talked about a wise person is someone who is relationally healthy. Now, at Hope, one of our values, one of our values as a church is that we would pursue what we call sometimes holistic Christian maturity. Many of us, if you're in a home group, we're working through a book by Pete Scazzaro called The Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. And we're talking about things like emotions. We're talking about things about like how we talk to one another, how we relate to God, how we relate to others, how we relate to ourselves, how we relate to this world. And this word relationship starts popping up and we're like, no, we're Christians. We're supposed to only be about the brain. What are we doing talking about relationships all the time, right? Well, listen, wisdom is in very, very much so about being relationally healthy. And so Aaron Bainhop pointed this out to me a while ago. But really, if you want a biblical category for what we're about when we say we want to be a church that pursues relational or sort of holistic Christian maturity, you could just substitute that wordful, that mouthful of a word and just say we want to be a wise church. We want to pursue wisdom. We want, we want to pursue wisdom and then, yeah, we want to be on mission with our wisdom so that the world looks at hope and, and doesn't conclude that, okay, here's a bunch of uh, righteous sort of stingy people, self-righteous stingy people who are mean, you know, but instead are like, oh my gosh, like what's going on there in that community or with that person? Um, and that's Deuteronomy 4.6. What kind of nation has such wisdom? That's the mission of the church. Do you see it? And so we as a church want to pursue relational health. In other words, we want to pursue wisdom. So what I'm going to do as we close out is essentially just sort of riff out a ton of Proverbs. that I think sketches for us a life of relational health. And we'll start with our relationship to creation. This amazing thing that God spoke forth and has his fingerprints all over. I think because God made the world, we can explore it and we can get to know it. By wisdom, the Lord laid the earth's foundations. By understanding, he set the heavens in place. By his knowledge, the watery depths were divided and all clouds let drop the dew. Who studies the world for college right now? Who's in the sciences? Who's in any kind of... I mean, basically all of college is basically exploring God's world. When I pray for my kids before we drop them off at school... Lord, would you uh, be with my boys as they study the world that you made? As they learn about your creation. The righteous care for the needs of their animals. But the kindest acts of the wicked are cruel. And so our knowledge of the world should not be dominating. Our knowledge of the world as we learn about the world, as we learn about creation, we don't do that so that we master it or somehow, but we stay humble and we actually steward the earth like we would care for our labradoodle. And I think it's always should be marked by awe. There are three things that are 
too amazing for me. Four that I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky. Any birders out there? Nobody? By myself? I see you. Amen. When we were preaching in the parking lot, do you remember those days? And the, and the sort of the hawk would fly behind and you got, I mean, that, that was amazing. We were a Proverbs church in those days. Uh, the way of a snake on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a young woman. These are three things that are too amazing to me. For, what's the point? Awe. As we explore this creation that God made, we ought to be humble. We ought to be awe. We ought to be marked by wonder. That's our relationship to the creation. What about our relationship to ourself? I think the Bible emphasizes the importance of not just our relationship to the world, but also even to our interior life. The Bible is amazing because it forces us, I think, to examine our interior life. So 423 says, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Get to know yourself. I think part of the problem sometimes when we are so theologically informed, but so relationally malformed is because we are not paying attention to our interior life. And so it's a great opportunity, I hope, to safely do that. Amen. Each heart knows its own bitterness and no one else can share its joy. Even in laughter, the heart may ache and rejoicing may end in grief. A heart at peace gives life to the body. Envy rots the bones. All a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives, motives are weighed by the Lord. The purposes of a person's heart are deep waters, but one who has insight draws them out. I think as we get to know ourselves like this, as we sort of pursue self-knowledge in the best possible way, our need for grace becomes more apparent. Amen? And as our need for grace becomes more apparent, then we grow in patience towards other people. A person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. Do not say, I'll pay you back for this wrong. Wait for the Lord and he will avenge you. And so reactivity, this thing called reactivity where somebody does wrong and, and, and you just have to react. You know, as we sort of get to know our interior life, we sort of grow in patience, don't we? And the grace that we knowingly need and receive from the Lord, we start to extend to other people as well. That's wisdom. That's relational healthiness. And as we grow in that, we grow in our emotional intelligence as well. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. Verse 5. Answer a fool according to his folly, for he will be, or he will be wise in his own eyes. Which is it? Don't answer them, or answer them? Which is it? Remember, the Proverbs come at you like life comes at you. And so suddenly we're asked, hey, what is the wise thing to do in this moment? And we ask the Spirit to guide us. If anyone loudly blesses their neighbor early in the morning, this to me is great because this is like when you tell somebody when they're, they got a terrible diagnosis, like, it'll be okay, and here's the Bible verse. If anyone loudly blesses their neighbor early in the morning, it'll be taken as a curse, okay? So you're blessing them. What's wrong with that? You're saying a blessing to them. But you just woke them up. That's mean. That's not thoughtful. Okay, so being relationally healthy is understanding when to bless somebody, when, you know, sort of just let someone sleep in. Amen? (laughs) 
and the way we use our words. The words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Anxiety weighs down the heart, but a kind word cheers it up. The soothing tongue is a tree of life, but a perverse tongue crushes the spirit. See, this get after our relationships with others. So our relationship to the creation, our relationship to ourself, and then that flows into our relationship to others. And the way that we use our speech, healthy relationships are marked by careful speech. So you can have the right answer, and like we'll see with Job, you can have perfect theological responses to somebody struggling, but you can actually say the wrong thing in saying the right thing by saying it at the wrong time and in the wrong way. Or things like gossip or mischaracterization. I think healthy relationships with others are marked by justice, marked by mercy. An unplowed field produces food for the poor, but injustice sweeps it away. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. Healthy relationships are marked by honesty and by constancy. One who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. And so our relationship to others, relational health, and then finally we begin or we sort of end where wisdom begins, which is our relationship to the Lord. Proverbs states that we will never be truly wise until we have a relationship with God. And here are a few verses that get at that. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fools despise wisdom and instruction. 2 6, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. 3 5 and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him, so he will make your paths straight. And finally, blessed is one who always trembles before the Lord. God is big. But whoever hardens their heart falls into trouble. Friends, a heart that is soft before the Lord is a heart that is on the path to wisdom. Wisdom is being being in touch, not just with reality, but of course being in touch with the source and sustainer of all reality. Reality himself, the Lord. And if this was true of the Old Testament believer, how much more true is it for us who have seen wisdom in the flesh? Jesus. Who, as this pointed out, was not just prophet, priest, and king, but was also wise sage. If you've ever read Jesus in the Gospels and been like, Jesus sometimes tells stories or tells parables that kind of make me think. It's because Jesus was wise. It's because Jesus lived well in every relational vector. Jesus lived well in his relationship with his creation that he made. He was in the groove firmly in the groove of his own fingerprints. He was also living well with others by bringing flourishing to every person that he encountered. 
Think of the miracles as a way of restoring people to how they were designed to be. Not just as sort of these brute, look at me, I'm a magician, I can do awesome stuff. Like sometimes we approach Jesus' miracles that way. We're like, look, he's proving his divinity. Now certainly he's divine. But I think his miracles ought to be looked at more as someone who is saying, I am bringing restoration to the creation. I'm showing you a preview of that final day when I make all things new. Jesus is wise. He is in perfect relationship with others. And he is in perfect relationship, of course, with his father. Not just obeying his father like a robot, mechanically obeying the law, but with wisdom and with beauty. When you see Jesus in his, and we say and confess that Jesus was without sin because he's God in flesh. And when we see his life and we see his obedience, his sinless obedience, who among us says that is some ugly self-righteousness there? Nobody. Instead, what do we do? We are in awe of how beautiful Jesus is. And we notice that people who are broken by society and broken by their own awareness of sin are like clinging to him and will not let go. They love Jesus. A wise person who is wise in all of their relationships, even in a good relationship with the Lord, is beautiful. And what else? Jesus not only lived a wise life, but in dying for us on the Roman cross, Jesus shines forth true wisdom, shaming the wisdom of the, of the world. Paul says, this is the wisdom of God. And if, if the scholars I read are right, and I think they are, then what we see even in the cross is a uniting of you with God so that we can have a relationship with the Lord. Which is ultimate wisdom. At the cross, Jesus dies for us and brings us near to God so that we can have rest, so that we can have forgiveness, so that we can have a, a full assurance that we are in relationship with God and that He is for us, that He is our friend in Christ. And so, if your trust is in Jesus, the truly wise one, then listen, His wisdom is your wisdom. See, the wisdom we crave is already ours if we are in Christ. I read recently that the Christian life is just basically realizing we're already in the room that we're trying to get into. In Christ, we already are wise. And so what do we do? We pursue wisdom not to get right with God, not to get in the room. We pursue wisdom because... We're right with God. We're in the room. And he gives it to us. May God give us wisdom in Jesus. Lord, we do pray. That hope as a community would be a relationally healthy church. Lord, that we would be wise. We, like James tells us to, cry out for wisdom. We want to live in the salvation you give us in a way that brings life to others. We want to align ourselves with reality so that we can be a blessing to others. Would you make that so in Jesus? Thank you for being our wisdom, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.